Okay, so the objective of tonight's discussion is to really re-examine a topic that we're all familiar with, at least to a certain extent, um, but to try to get like a different insight, a different perspective on the matter, and that's the question of Amuna. Because Talmud tells us that if you tell, if you break down the reason for every mitzvah, every mitzvah we do, the Gemara tells us in, in Makos, on page 24a, that Bachabakrok Vamidan al-Achas, that Chabakrok, the prophet, he distilled all of Torah into one core principle, and that's emuna, that's faith. Uh, as he quotes the verse, Vitzadik Bemuna so Yichya. Sadik lives with Emuna. So last week, just to you know catch everyone up, last week we said that the goal of life is become a tzadik. How do you become a tzadik? So here we say we see the become a tzadik by doing mitzvos. That if someone does mitzvos, a mitzvah is an act of identification with your soul. Because the only reason why someone, oh, I don't want to do a mitzvah. A mitzvah is a spiritual act. Why would someone do a, a mitzvah? Well, it doesn't make sense to, to act that way. Unless you're actually a soul, not just a body. So just like the body needs nourishment and tending to, the soul also needs tending to. Well, what's that? That's mitzvahs. In fact, the Zohar tells us that this reason why there's 613 mitzvahs is because there's 613 parts of the soul, and each soul needs to be fed with a spiritual food. What's that spiritual food? That's mitzvos. And thus, because the soul is comprised of 613 parts, therefore each one of them needs to be fed, and each mitzvah corresponds to a different part of the soul. And thus, if you want to feed your soul in its entirety, you do all the mitzvos. So that's mitzvos in general. But how is it manifest in us? So the Gemara says a tremendous insight that the goal of the mitzvos is to have emuna, is to have faith. That's a, a, an idea, I think, to, that's worthwhile to get started with. And additionally, there's a very famous Ramban. Ramban and his commentary on the Torah in Exodus, in the end of Parshas Bo, the Ramban has a very lengthy uh, 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 treating of the idea of mitzvos. And he says like this, I don't want to go through the whole thing, but he says, Va'ata omer batam mitzvos rabbis. And now I'm going to tell you a general principle with many mitzvos. And he gives a backstory that from, from the beginning of uh, the period where idolatry reigned in the world, people started to lose their amuna. There was various problems with faith. And he breaks down the different kinds of, of problems that there were with faith. And ultimately he says that the reason why, the way we can overcome the problems in faith is with mitzvot. So that's the end, and the end part he says. It goes through the whole thing. It's very interesting if you want to read it. The reason why we do all the mitzvot is that we should have amuna. So there's a little bit of a progression here. We're trying to become a tzaddik. What does it mean to be a tzaddik? It means to do mitzvos. Well, what does mitzvos, how does mitzvah change a person? By giving them emuna. That's the idea. I wanted to maybe suggest a framework for this and uh, just a way of understanding this. Uh, because we established in the past that we're here in this world because there is purpose, right? If there was no purpose in this world, there was no need for us to exist. The only reason why they might have created us is because there is some meaning to it. And the reason why there's meaning, we call that free will. Free will means that we can actually make a difference. Our actions matter. Our decisions matter. What are, the, what are these decisions that we need to make? So we said it's one of three, in three different arenas. There's the arena of the body-soul conflict. We have on one hand 
our body, which is half of our identity. We have our soul, which is a totally opposing half of our identity. And those two are fused together. And man can choose to lean and to prioritize and to focus on their body or their soul. And that really is uh, a major conflict that we need to navigate through in our lives. Are we going to become a body? Are we going to identify as a body? Well, how, what happens if you identify as a body? Well, that means that life, the scope of life is 70, 80, 90 years. And the goal in life is the betterment of the body. Correct? Because if that's who you are, if you're a body, then of course everyone wants to improve their own lot. But the lot of what? The lot of your body. Thus, your objective in life is going to be your body. But if someone's a soul and the body is just ancillary, it's just there, no one in their right mind says their goal is to improve the status of their sweater. Right? Why? Because the sweater is something that you have. It's not you. You are you. And the sweater is something that clothes you. If you were a soul, if we identified entirely as a soul, then the body is just a very fancy sweater that we have. It's nice. You want to take care of it. You don't want any, you want to maintain your sweater, right? Because you need the sweater to cover you up. But it's not who you are. Your goal in life is not to think, how do I make the sweater really nice? No, the sweater is there to serve you. Well, what's you? If you are a soul, the, the body is just a sweater for your soul. It's just clothing for your soul. So yes, you value it, and you need it, and you appreciate it, but it's not where you're trying, to, it's not your objective, it's not your aim, it's not your focus. And indeed, we believe in uplifting the body and make, taking the physical world and making it spiritual as well. But that's, but you know, that's okay. You could be happy and your sweater could be happy as well. But who are you? You're a soul. No, problem is you don't feel like you're a soul. But that's the first arena of challenge that we have in life. If we did not have a body, there would be no, if we were just souls, you know what? There's souls in heaven that are very happy and they're doing the will of God and they're not at all conflicted and there's no meaning in their lives because there's no counter force that's going to withdraw from their soulness. So that's the first uh, arena of, of conflict. The next arena of conflict is who is, it, who is our guide? Who is our master? You know, we as Jews, we know, we live by, God tells us what to do and how to behave. He, you know, he's our master. We're submitting ourselves. We pray to him. Right? We, we hope and yearn that he'll take care of us. Right? He's the dominion over our lives. Problem is, we have a Yetzirah. The Gemara, the Gemara calls the Yetzirah a foreign god within us. He's a foreign god. Why? Because he can take the place of God. Why? Yetzirah says sin. Well, how could you follow his, his instruction? God told you not to follow his instruction. God said, don't sin, right? And you want to sin? Yetzirah tells you to sin? He's trying to be an alternative for God. And if someone follows their directive, what are they demonstrating? They're demonstrating that it's not the Almighty God who's really their God. They have the foreign God instead. Problem is, is that we are predisposed to follow the Yetzirah. But this is the second arena of conflict that we have in our lives. Who is our God? Is it the Yetzirah or is it the Almighty? It seems likely that if you asked anyone, who's your God? They would say, oh, it's Hashem, of course. But if you watch the way people actually behave, they don't behave like that. So there's a little bit of a gap between the way we think and the way we actually behave. And that's critical because that's where Amunah comes in. Amunah is about bridging that gap. 
Lastly, it's a question of purpose. We know that this world is merely a corridor before Olam Abba. Prepare yourself in the corridor so you could be eligible to enter Olam Abba. Problem is, is that that's an idea, a theoretical idea, but we typically tend to live for this world and try to improve ourselves in this world. And Olam Abba, it becomes secondary. It becomes not so important. It's tertiary to our objective and purpose in life. And I think that Chazal really illustrate uh, the problem that we face in, in, in a few different sources. So here, the, the Gemara says that there's five times that King David said, Barchinafshi, my soul will bless God. And the Gemara asks an interesting question. Why, why, did, why did King David make up this prayer? These prayers are with respect to God and with respect to our soul. How so? So he gives a few examples here. Just like God permeates the entire world, so too our soul permeates our entire body. Number one. Just like God is, uh, is unseen but sees. God sees us but we cannot see God. So too our soul sees but is unseen. Thirdly, just like God feeds and nourishes the whole world, so too our soul nourishes the whole body. Just like God is pure, so too our soul is pure. And just like God sits in the inner chambers, so too the soul sits in the inner chambers. And therefore, there's a connection between our soul and God. Says King David, let my soul praise God. My body can't praise God. My body has no understanding of God. But let my soul praise God. That's what the Gemara says. But I think it's really interesting. It makes a comparison between our soul and God by saying both of them see but are unseen. No matter what you do, no matter how many microscopes and telescopes you use, you cannot see your soul, nor can you see God. And the Gemara also says, again in Brachos, that the Olam Haba, the next world, is Ayin Lo Ra'asan, I cannot see it. I think what the Gemara is doing is setting the stage of the problem that we have in life. We have these three areas of conflict. We have a body-soul conflict. We have a Yetzirah God conflict. We have Olam Azeh, this world, and Olam Abba conflict. And with regards to each one of the options of purity, the options of righteousness in our lives, say, says the Torah, the Torah points out specifically, they cannot be seen. Body-soul, we can't see our soul. Yetzirah and God... We cannot see God. Olam Azeh, this world, Olam Abba, we cannot see Olam Abba. I cannot see it, says the Talmud. It's like the sun, he can't see it. It's beyond the purview of our world. Thus, perhaps we can say that the real conflict is between what we may know in our head is true, like, but we cannot see it, we cannot relate to it in a physical way. And therefore, it's a problem. If we could see God, if we could see our soul, if we could see Olam Abba, there wouldn't be room for conflict. It would be an even footing, so to speak, with our body. We all know. I ask anyone in this room, anyone I've ever met, I ask them, how long do you plan on living? Even the greatest optimists don't say more than 150 years, right? So people are going to die. We're all going to die. And even 
Adam, who lived to 930 years old, he's still been dead for longer than he's been alive. So it's illogical for someone to invest the entirety of their lives exclusively for their duration of existence here, their body, so to speak, because what happens after you die, the body starts to decompose right away, you put it in the ground, you dig it up a couple of years later, and it's it disappeared. So we are acting so strangely, it's almost illogical the way we behave, because we're favoring our body, and it's it's an investment that's guaranteed to go back to zero. Whereas our soul that exists forever, we tend to neglect, even though that actually lasts. So on one hand, we have the opportunity to invest in in, an investment that's going to last. On the other hand, we have the opportunity to invest in something that's guaranteed to go back to zero, to have no utility for us, yet we seem to favor that option. And the, the only reason why we would do that is because one of them is seen, we could see our body, we could see this world, we see what the Yetzirah presents to us. Everything else that's really lasting, like God, like the, like the Neshama, like Olam Abba, all the things that really matter in the grand picture of our lives are unseen, and therefore we don't really connect to it only intellectually, and thus we don't actually behave in a way that is representative of those principles. And that's really why we're conflicted. And what is a Muna? I want to make a suggestion of what a Muna is. Hear me out here. I want to suggest that the problem that we have between our brain, so to speak, and our eyes, if you will, or our behavior, what we know theoretically, and how we actually live and perceive the world, the gap, the reason why there is a gap is because of a lack of a Muna. Typically, I think, when people talk about a Muna, they think about believing in your head that God exists. I think you have to be a fool to reject that. I really think so. We could argue about that later. But that's not really the thing we need to overcome. That's not The real obstacle in our lives is not to get the idea of God or our neshama or Lama Ba into our head. It could be firmly entrenched in our head. We know for sure God exists. We don't question it. And we know we're supposed to do mitzvahs. But we don't behave like that. It's still unseen. There's still, you know, we're disadvantaged spiritually because it's not playing with the same rules that the physical and the competition. It's not fear. It's unfair. We have our body and soul. The body is so there. It's so apparent. It's so palpable and tangible. And therefore, it becomes super real. The soul, it's somewhere, this idea. Yes, it's permanent, but we don't see it. We don't connect it on that level. And therefore, it's not as real in our lives. And the way we behave reflects our reality. And Amuna is not about making the idea of God available in your head. It's, it's actually changing the balance, so to speak, between what you know but cannot see versus what you know is nonsense but see and feel in a real tangible way. So this has to exist. This model has to exist in order for us to have free will. Because we, if we didn't, if this didn't exist, we wouldn't have free will. But this really shows where the room for change is in our lives. We smoke the cigarette on Shabbos, God forbid, and we don't get zapped. We're fine. We don't see it. The whole thing's unseen. It's only in our head we know it's wrong because the Torah says not to do it. But how do we change that? There's a disconnect, exactly. And Muna is not something that's in your head. If it's in your head, so what? No, it's just your Muna became real. Emuna, Emuna makes this trap, it makes a trip. Emuna makes a trip from 
integrating it into your mind so you could, let's say, prove Amuna. And I think most of the Amuna focus that we have in our, let's say, in our literature is trying to prove, let's say, or disprove any questions against the existence of God. But that's not really the hard, the challenge. The major challenge is once you know that God exists, how come you don't wear a tie to, sh- to pray? If you were talking to the president, you would wear a tie to pray, right? So you don't actually really believe that you're that you're talking to God. Because if you did, how could you schmooze with your friend in the back of the shul? Now, we're all guilty of this. I know. Not you. But I- I'm guilty of this. <laughs> right? Because we don't really believe it. If we were talking to the president tomorrow morning at 7 o'clock, who would be able to oversleep? None of us. So, 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 how do we how do we oversleep? It's because we don't actually believe, even though we know we, we we have no doubt that prayer is talking to God, but we don't actually live by that principle. It's not real and tangible in our lives, and that's really where the challenge of Amuna really is to take what we know and to integrate it into our behavior. How do we do that? Talk Amuna, yes. How do we do that? Says the Torah, mitzvos. Tzadik is the reason why we do mitzvahs. Tzadik is someone who, someone who lives with emuna, not someone who knows emuna. Tzadik yodeya emuna. It's no. Someone means to live with that principle, to actually behave in a way that's reflective of that principle. We know something is true, we don't behave by it. That's why, because we don't have emuna. A tzadik is someone who lives with emuna, not just who knows emuna and behaves in light of those of that reality, which is a, a surprising Gemara. Uh, the Gemara says in Shabbos on thirty-one A, it's Gemara's uh, trying to understand uh, a famous verse. So the Gemara tries to say, well, what does this mean? So the first emunas itecha, which means the emuna, the faith of your times, says the Talmud. This. Verse, these six words, Emunas, Itecha, Chosen, Yeshua's, Chochmas, Vadas, are referring to the six orders of the Mishnah. And the word Emuna, Ze Seder Zroim. The word Emuna refers to the section of the Talmud that discusses agriculture. There's a link between faith and agriculture. That's what the Gemara says. Says Tosvos, Emunas, Someone who plants is someone who believes in God. That's what the um, that's what the Talmud says. And of course, this what does that mean? It means instead of going, you want to learn about Amuna, where do you, where should you go? Go to the farmer. Somehow the farmer, they're magically the the the, the, the men of faith because they're farmers. If you want to study about about God. Where should you go? Don't go to the yeshiva. Go to the farmer. Well, the farmers know about anything. How, they have a muna. I want to suggest that what, what the Talmud here is really hinting is, is our point. In our world, we have absolutely, and by the way, this is true. If you learn about horticulture and I researched it, no one really knows how planting actually works. You drop a seed in the ground. The seed is inedible. The soil is also inedible. You pour water in it. That too was inedible. And before, before you know it, magically, something happens on the ground. You can't see it, right? You can't see what happens. And before you know it, there's edible fruits that grow that could create other fruits. We don't know actually how it works. 
yeah, we understand that you put a seed in the ground and something grows out of it, but how does that work? It's all magic. You know, the soil's inedible, the soil's inedible, and it means it's, it's a supernatural experience, but what happens? They don't know why when you put a seed No, they don't know why. I researched it. They don't know because it's God. It's magic, right? It's not as simple as like one plus one and you have Right, it's like, exactly. What do we call that? We call that faith. But I'm saying, I want to say even more. I want to say that what happens if farming stops working? We all die. But Rabbi, we could eat meat. No, you can't, because where does the meat come from? So the magic of planting, of dropping an edible seed into an edible soil to create something that's edible, that is the only reason why all of us are, are alive. And could you imagine we're relying on God, on God's magic, and no one's nervous about it? How, how come we have all these conferences and all the terrorism and climate change and policy and, and taxes? No one's talking about what do we do if planting stops working. The tr- and, okay, fine. But we don't know how to explain it. Well, you can't. You, you, well, you make it out of air? Maybe, okay, maybe that's our suggestion. But what they do before they were able to create food in a lab? Well, the, the answer is, is that this is, an, this is an image of what faith is. Faith is that you know something is true. You don't know how it's true. You can't see it. Yet, you're at ease that life will continue because of that. We're all relying on it. None of us are losing any sleep about it because we actually live by the principle this is real. We have to live with God with that is real. That, and that's a perfect analogy to faith. Now, just to, just to explain why we have the problem. So we said it's in our head, but it's not in our behavior. So there's just an idea, a book, a famous book written in 1957 called uh, The Cognitive Dissonance. It describes a condition where people, people don't like disharmony between their beliefs and, uh, and their behavior. So for example, the classic example is you tell a smoker that, you're, that smoking will kill you. They say, no, you're wrong. Smoking doesn't kill you. Why? And there's such abundance of evidence that smoking kills you. Because the point is, is that for them, it's much easier to change your beliefs than to change your behavior. It's very hard to quit smoking. And therefore, but you can't smoke if you know it's killing you. Who wants to inhale uh, cancer? No, no one does that. So the only way for someone to actually live with themselves is if they convince themselves that, oh, no, it's not really true. And this, so this is an idea called cognitive dissonance, where in your head, your cognition, you're willing to really compromise on, on standards of truth in order to ensure that your body and your behavior are not in conflict with your beliefs. Why? Because it's easier to change your beliefs than it is to change your behavior. That's an idea. So that's an idea developed in the 50s. The truth is the Gemara tells us, very famous Gemara, very surprising Gemara in Sanhedrin, that tells us that the Jews, many Jews unfortunately, would do idolatry. What does idolatry mean? It means to bow down to uh, uh, a figurine, gods of stone and wood. It's really illogical. It told, how do you say that something that you created in, a, in your 3D printer or in your lab or in your woodworking shop, that has ultimate power? It's insane, right? It's totally illogical. Says the Gemara, well, why do people do it? 
The Gemara asks the question, why do the Jews do idolatry? The Jews always knew, they knew that idolatry had no substance. They knew it was, it was, it was, it was meaningless. So why did, why did they worship Avodos Kachavim? Why did they do idolatry? They wanted permissiveness in matters of promiscuity. What they really wanted was uh, the illicit sexuality. That's what they wanted. That's what they really wanted. The problem is, if you believe in God, how could you do that? Taurus is not to do it. So therefore they said, oh, no, we don't believe in God, we believe in idolatry. But this really describes cognitive dissonance. Their behavior was what was the ultimate goal. And it's very hard to change your behavior. But to change your beliefs, that's not so difficult. Why? Because we'll just follow the idolatry. Now, if you ask those people, why do you follow the idolatry? Well, they would say, because we believe in it. I mean, it has power, whatever they would say. But they were, not unaware, they were unaware of their cognitive distance, of their bias, uh, that really was underpinning their decision. But this really shows us that the challenge is not to change what you believe. It's very easy to change what you believe. You can even change what you believe to believe nonsense. We want to have a Muna. It's Vitzarek Bamana, so you have to live with a Muna. To live with a Muna, that is really hard. And my grandfather used to always say that we know the story that Esau, Esau, he would, um, he protested when they brought to bury Jacob, he protested. And Jacob's grandson, Chushim, who was deaf, didn't understand what was going on. He took a baseball bat and teed off his head. He de- de- decapitated Esav. And Esav's head rolled into the Mars Machpelah, into the burial cave of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And they were able to bury Jacob. So when they buried Esav, they actually buried a headless Esav, a headless Esau. Where was his head? His head rolled into the cave and was buried there. That's what the Talmud says. And, but the idea behind it is if you looked at Esau and you just isolated his head, just what he knew, so to speak, cognitively, he was no different than the forefathers. He wasn't. He was like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Esau. They were the same with his head. The difference is what made Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob special, that they were the forefathers of the Jewish people, was that their body also followed suit and also lived with the principles of their brain. They actually behaved in a way that was congruent to their beliefs. And therefore, they're the tzaddikim, and Esau was called Esau of a, a Russia, because what you know in your head, you have a moon, I have faith in my faith in God. Yeah, but if you're not actually behaving in a way that's aligned with those quote-unquote beliefs and knowledge system, then you're a Russia. Right? That's not really what distinguishes you. Tzaddik, but also yich, you have to live with that. And... Talmud tells us that the way to actually do that is with mitzvos. Why? Because the goal of all the mitzvos is to achieve amuna, i.e. to bridge the gap between what we know and how we actually behave. And the Gemara tells us, Rashi quotes it, that Noah, he was a man of limited faith. He had a small amount of faith. He believed, but he didn't really believe. Why? Because before the flood, even though we know he spent 120 years building the ark, 
But the, the, the verse tells us that Noah entered the, the ark because of the water. Even though God told him several verses earlier to go into the, into the ark. Because in Noah's world, the reason why he actually entered the ark was, yeah, God told him, but yeah, but the water is coming. In his reality, so to speak, yeah, he believed in God, and I'm sure he behaved in light, you know, in light, uh, his behavior reflected that belief, but there was still an element of his behavior that was governed by what was visible, so to speak, not what was invisible. And I think the real, the real interesting idea to ponder is how do mitzvos contribute to muna, i.e., to bridging the gap of theoretical and practical knowledge of God. We gave a, I just spoke earlier about Riachon ben Zakkai. My grandfather used to say Riachon ben Zakkai had a high level of Amuna. Why? Because when he met Vespasian uh, during the siege of Jerusalem, he met him and famously told him, Peace be unto you, O king. And he said, well, I'm not a king, I'm a general. He says, no, you are a king. Why? Because the Levanon ba'adir the Levanon, the temple will fall in the hands of a mighty. Must be you're a king. And the truth is, he, well, he did become a king. He became an emperor at that time. But what's remarkable, my grandfather pointed out, is that his physical eyes, what was visible to him, was general. If you looked at his uniform, what would it say? It'd say, four-star general. That's what it would say. But his reality was actually governed more by Torah than by, why his, the, by the invisible truth, so to speak, than by the visible truth. And therefore, the invisible truth, i.e. the Torah, says that Jerusalem will fall in the hands of a king. Therefore, he sees a king. And that was, you know, that was, that was his reality even more than the visualized reality of his eyeballs. The, what was invisible, his soul and God, was more real than what was visible. That's an example of Amuna. And, of course, that's a high level of Amuna. And I would say, I want to, I, I think there's at least 10 levels of Amuna. Starting with believing in your head to uh, all the way till your uh, Moshe Rabbeinu, where you, that's the only thing that's real. Nothing else exists. But I, I think it's really remarkable that I think it, it, it presents mitzvahs with new meaning. Mitzvahs are there to make you a tzaddik, i.e. to give you a muna, and to bridge the gap of your theoretical and your practical faith. We all already know, we all admit, we all ad- agree that God exists. So we're at the promised land. No, that's the beginning. That's the first step of our journey. Once you acknowledge that God exists, okay, that's in your head. You're Asav, Mazel Tov, you're a Russia. Right? What have you done? Nothing. You're starting off your journey. The, 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 hard, the hard part is to take what you know theoretically and bridge, it, bridge the gap between that and your reality. My grandfather used to say that Tefillin, we were one on our head and one opposite our heart. Because tefillin represent that the goal of mitzvos, which is to take what we know already and bring it into our heart as well. Our heart is influenced by what we see, and we see our body, we see this world, we see the Yetzirah's tantalizing offers. And while in our head maybe we know that the invisible is really true, mitzvos are there to help us bridge the gap. Says the Ramban, the goal of all the mitzvos are to do that, all the holidays are to do that, getting up to daven to pray. All prayer is about that. All prayer. What's prayer about? Making it real, the fact that God is in control. And I think 
uh, at least uh, one takeaway we can have is really the value of mitzvahs. A lot of people say, does God really care if I eat cheeseburgers? Like, that question is a mistake because that question assumes that the role of mitzvahs are to, to have, so to speak, a, a practical benefit of each mitzvah in isolation. That cheeseburgers must be evil and therefore to disavow cheeseburgers is to not do something evil. No! The goal of mitzvahs is to bring you to Amuna. Even if it's arbitrary, what you're saying is, I'm doing, I'm refraining from this behavior because of something invisible. What you're doing by any mitzvah is you're making the invisible more real. You make the invisible more real, you're heading towards your path of Amuna. But that's really what uh, the goal of our life and the goal, the goal of mitzvahs are. And hopefully we will indeed have more meaning with mitzvahs because uh, with our uh, awareness that they are going to lead us to a path of hopefully becoming a tzaddik and being someone who lives with Amuna as well as being aware in our head that Amuna is true.